on air. This development is now in the kind of second innings, I would say. So it's, it's a lot more sophistication, and I think you'll see a lot of development in the next uh, 12 months. This is On Air by ANZ Institutional. We bring you the latest market-leading analysis and thought leadership from more than 30 global markets, giving you the information you and your business needs to thrive. It's a very interesting time. It's unprecedented uh, in the the debt markets and just general markets. I think volatility has been the theme. Uh, A couple of key points. You know, the correlation risk of all assets um, and just what we're seeing with uh, the inflationary concerns has really impacted asset prices across the board. If you look at, for example, U.S. investment uh, grade, it's actually down record basis this year, double digit returns, which has really set the scene. And a lot of that has been the rate move. If you see domestically in Australia, uh, we've seen over 100 basis point rate moves as well as in the U.S. and globally. And that's really impacting the sentiment um, and the volumes. Volumes are down anywhere from you know, 30, 40% globally, depending on which market you look at. The corporate market in particular in Australia, volumes are down. But having said that, we had a record volumes last year. And actually on the financial institution side this year, volumes are out significantly as the banks now have come back to fund in the market. So there are definitely pockets of liquidity. Um, Investors still have uh, liquidity in the market, but it is very much a market where you need to navigate um, on any given day. And obviously, all eyes are on, you know, RBA policy, Fed policy, inflationary concerns, geopolitical concerns. Um, so there's a lot to discuss. So I think, you know, the, the, the backdrop of the market is definitely one that we haven't seen um, in a decade, particularly as, you know, our central bank as well as the U.S. central bank now have gone on to a increasing rate cycle, which we haven't seen in, in 10 years. So Tessa, can you tell us what's the outlook for the sustainable finance market in the next six to 12 months or so? Look, from what we see, it's fair to say that the the outlook is still pretty strong for sustainable finance globally. And we, you know, maybe won't see the same extent of growth that we saw last year. We had um, over 1.7 trillion US dollars worth of sustainable debt um, activity globally last year alone, um, which for context was... um, just over double the volume of activity in 2020. Uh, What's interesting is we've actually had the strongest start to the Australian dollar sustainable bond market. Uh, We've had just, just under... We had just under four billion of issuance in Q1 2021, and seven billion uh, in Q1 2022. However, this isn't across all issuer segments. Issuance from corporates is certainly impacted this year. Um, some clients have deferred sustainable finance plans to later in the year uh, due to some of the the conditions that Jimmy just spoke about. Um, but issuance from supranational sector in particular has been strong to start the year. Are you seeing any lingering impact on market activity from the pandemic? Not necessarily. I mean, the the volumes that we saw throughout 2021 in in the Australian market um, were, I mean, it was the strongest year that we've had. Uh, There was over $20 billion worth of of sustainable bond activity last year. Um, So... You know the, the COVID impacts weren't weren't significant. Um, if you're looking at the bond markets, um, and certainly this year, I mean, it's it's really about those broader market conditions now that are that are impacting um, issuance appetite. Uh, Jimmy, uh, what do you think issuers and investors will focus on this year? 
Yeah, I, I mean, just to echo on what Tessa has mentioned, I think just the, the whole theme of ESGs, I think this year is really taking hold despite the market volatility and general volumes being down, the proportion of um, ESG volumes as a total market has actually increased. If you look at Asia, for example, I think volumes are generally down 30, 40%, but ESG makes up 22% of the total volume. So I think issuers, corporates, uh, financial institutions, um, you know, SSAs are, are really taking this theme forward and we're seeing good developments in the market. So I think that despite the volatility, we'll, will continue to focus. And I think the other element is that investors are more and more becoming um, educated as well as um, demanding in what they're wanting from issuers, um, you know, from looking at their sustainability profiles, um, how the, you know, what's vetted, um, what the, who, who are the third parties, what they're promising. So I think that this development is now in the kind of second innings, I would say, of, you know, the first stage was the last few years. Everyone was just getting up to speed. There's a lot of basic questions, but we've really now moved to, you know, stronger development of frameworks, understanding. So it's, it's a lot more sophistication. And I think that's good for the market. And also, despite the volatility, a lot of discussions are being had. And I think you'll see a lot of development in the next uh, 12 months. Now you see a lot of experts in uh, corporates, in, on the investor side that are really focused on ESG developments, um, helping you know, the general um, you know, institutions understand that. So, so what we're seeing is what we've seen at ANZ for a long time now is embedding it in your DNA, that you, you don't just have one expert in the bank, but they're there to really train everyone. And we're seeing that across the board from issuer side to investor side. And so that's what we're seeing is a more sophistication of the market and the, the dialogue that everyone is having just generally on, you know, what are the KPI targets for the SBTs is a lot more sophisticated in the last six to 12 months than we've seen in the, definitely, you know, two or three years ago. Uh, Tessa, what are the opportunities for transition finance? Are you seeing new formats emerging in the last six to 12 months? Potentially. I mean, I think what we're getting to now is, uh, as Jimmy mentioned, you know, a kind of stage of maturity. Um, I think that, you know, the area of transition, transition finance um, has certainly brought it out, broadened out and the understanding around transition. Um, really, I mean, transition finance kind of encapsulates a, a very broad remit um, within the market. And to me, Transition finance is really any any form of financial kind of support that uh, helps companies with high carbon emissions. Um, particularly, there's a lot a lot of focus on on um, high emitting entities at the moment um, to really start to enact change and to to bridge their gap between their current position and you know net zero ambitions or goals. Um, the good news is that that awareness of transition, so more broadly than just um, sustainable finance products, but the elements of transition, um, that understanding has really increased across the market. There is still work to do. Um, I mean, we haven't seen this come through into more transition labelled instruments. So the issuance of transition bonds or transition loans is still pretty muted. But the, the continued growth in SLLs and SLBs globally, I think, really reflects that, that broader awareness around transition. Um, and it does, you know, those, those instruments do help to keep issuers on their decarbonisation pathway. Um, there are also a lot more tools to understand transition that are available in the market. So there's some OECD transition finance uh, toolkit that was, that was 
um, published. Also, the International Capital Markets Association has published their Transition Finance Handbook, um, as well as the Climate Bonds Initiative. So, um, there, there has been a lot of progress made, particularly around the understanding and awareness of transition. Um, but there are still there are still roadblocks. So, uh, one example recently is the Canadian Transition Taxonomy uh, has has stalled for now um, due to kind of differences in opinion of, of where that should be taken. Um, so I think there's there's further progress that can be made, further definitions that can be put around the market, but but that overall awareness has definitely increased and that'll translate into into um, more products uh, that, that incorporate elements of transition, whether it's sustainability linked, use of proceeds, or there, there might even be proliferation of other products. So why do you think the demand is muted? I think, I mean, I've, I've talked about it for a while now in terms of the kind of hesitancy to, to use the transition label if the sustainability linked uh, format is is more available to to entities. I think, you know, there's a bit of a, a nervousness around, um, you know, labelling something yourself as a transition instrument, um, especially when you can, you know, use those sustainability linked um, bonds and loans to put you on the pathway which you are still transitioning on. Um, so I think it's really just kind of a branding issue with the with the transition word. But I, I think, you know, to, to what I was saying before around the increased awareness, you know, maybe we'll see a bit of a shift in, in that. And Jimmy, are you seeing anything on your side? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with exactly what Tess is saying in the sense that I think that the transition, just maybe the word um, and the branding of that is maybe impacting, you know, but, but SL, basically the... The SS, SLLs then to the SLBs is really that progression anyway, and and that's where the market has really headed over the last uh, twelve months, where you know you've gone into the loan market and you have certain KPIs um, that's that's been and uh, been in the framework and embedded, and then you've gone into the bond market. Um, I think the biggest kind of between the SLL and SLB that we've seen is that the transparency around the SLB might be a lot greater just given the bond market's a lot more public. Um, you have less ability to go and talk to your lenders as you do in the loan market, while maybe the transparency around sometimes the SLL is less. So that's that's probably a, a big topic of discussion and it's you know a key factor between those two markets right now and how maybe the bond investors and then how the SLL market is developing. But you know, one piggybacks off each other and it's a progression. I see, we see corporates in Australia who have done both and, you know, some are way ahead in their progression on just that element versus others who are just stepping into a framework discussion um, and looking at either the SLL or the SLB market. Tessa, as investment demand grows for sustainable finance, are you seeing new investors come to the market? Well, ESG asset allocations from from investors are absolutely still growing. Uh, Bloomberg... Uh, expects that that ESG assets under management, which is obviously broader than just the sustainable finance market, um, could hit uh, 53 trillion US dollars uh, by 2025, which is you know that's less than three years from now. So that's quite a quite a big increase, um, and that's that's roughly a third of global AUM. Um, I think, as I said, that the it's important to note that that's that's broader than just the the debt, um, the ESG labelled debt market. 
Um, and there has been some debate over what constitutes ESG investments more broadly and regulation as well in some markets to try and address that. But again, Bloomberg does project that that ESG debt um, in itself will continue to grow as, as awareness builds and the standardization of products potentially um, also grows. Um, one thing we do get asked about from investors is, you know, what about the social aspect? Is is the S in ESG being forgotten? And what we see to date is still that climate and the environment does remain the largest focus of investors, but that there are strides that, that are being made around the social um, elements. So most of that comes down to what the the whole market is kind of grappling with, which is definitions, measurement, tracking and reporting of, of impact and outcomes, which has been arguably a lot easier in the in the environmental and, and green side of things um, than it has been on the social side. So um, overall, you know, the, the demand is definitely increasing. We continue to see oversubscription of these deals. Um, but, you know, it does come back to some of that... Um, you know, being able to communicate your sustainability or transition strategy and, uh, you know, provide the, the information back to investors about where you're currently at and where you're, where you're going. We definitely do see a growth in liquidity uh, for that product. For example, you know, local transactions out of Australia or, you know, we see on our platform on any given deal could be one or two times oversubscribed more than a, a regular plain vanilla bond format and that's that's because there is extra demand and liquidity coming out from fund managers real money uh, insurers that are targeting esg formatted bonds and that's that supply demand imbalance we're still seeing in the market just given that general volumes are down across the board because of market volatility that means also esg uh, formatted bonds are down but their targets from the investor side in asset allocation are actually up you know, as Tessa mentioned, the progressive growth of assets going into this space is growing uh, from the investor side. But right now, there's an imbalance because just supply is down. As we said, in the corporate space in Australia, supply is down significantly. In Asia, uh, in our market, too, 30, 40% down. So, what we are seeing is multiple oversubscription over plain vanilla bonds, which is a, a good sign, which then leads to uh, in certain in certain uh, deals, uh, better pricing outcomes um, and allowing to price them with new issue, no new issue concessions or, you know, inside uh, their relative value curve. I think the other element then is anecdotally, we're also seeing investors target a lot more on the ESG side for private placements. We're seeing, for example, you know, Asian investors asking reverse inquiry for particular ESG formatted bonds, um, larger sizes, and they will actually go down the rating spectrum to find it. So that just shows you there is significant growth and, and targets that we're seeing uh, investors uh, really uh, have and, and that growth in the market, particularly from the Japanese uh, investors as well. So I think that's a very positive sign in the market and that just really nuances that, you know, what we're seeing in pricing and then that will play into the secondary market. Um, obviously, as liquidity picks up when the market, uh, you know, flows a little better. The issue of greenwashing is rising as the market grows. 
What ANZ doing as a leading arranger of ESG label finance to mitigate this risk? I think, um, you know, the term greenwashing does get used uh, an awful lot these days. And for me, it, it means, um, you know, someone saying that they're going to do something and, and not doing it or, um, you know, different perceptions of what um, action is or what ambition is. Um, and what actions need to be taken. So we do still see that kind of misalignment in the market between what um, different investors want. And that's difficult to kind of translate, I guess, into into you know a, a deal that that's going to suit everyone. We see this particularly on, on the sustainability linked transactions. And again, this is because on the use of proceeds side of the market, green bonds, uh, sustainability bonds, green loans, um, the definitions around products have been around for a little bit longer, right? You're talking about assets and and use of proceeds for particular projects. And there's, you know, a reasonable amount of standardization in terms of what the expectations are around those products. Now we can go into a whole discussion around taxonomies and, and, and that space, but I think we'll leave that for today. Um, so the, the ambiguity really seems to come out a bit more in the sustainability-linked transactions that we do um, and that we see in the market. So, you know, as Jimmy mentioned, there's a little bit less transparency around sustainability-linked loans. So customers aren't required to disclose the targets that they use for those loans um, to the market. So there's less visibility in the market as a whole as a result Um over you know what's actually being used as in those in those transactions, whereas in the bond market they do have to disclose the targets to to um, the market. So you know it does create some of this kind of bifurcation in terms of you know where is the market actually at, um, what targets are being used, so you know so that we can get an accurate picture of how we're going in terms of transition, um, and. Yeah, ultimately kind of different definitions of what, um, you know, what action actually means. So if you ask 100 different investors, you know, what what those elements mean to them, they'll probably give you 100 different answers, slightly different answers. Um, so it does make it tricky when you're, when you're marketing these transactions. Um, but what we've seen on this, particularly in the sustainability linked bonds, through the roadshow process, there's huge engagement. Engagement is really key to investors, um, especially when we are dealing with transition, um, understanding the, the starting position and the actions that are being taken over time. So those roadshows, you know, can be reasonably lengthy. I mean, the, the, um, the detail and the questions that are being asked um, seems to kind of increase year on year, which is great. I mean, we're kind of building a, a base knowledge uh, every year and kind of building on top of it. Um, whether it's on the investor side or, or on the issuer side. Yeah, I think a lot comes down to um, transparency. I, I think, as Tessa mentioned, we're definitely in the early stages of the sustainably linked side where there's a, there's a lot more rigor and framework and expectation around what green bonds. Um, now we move to the other side. And, and it does d- differ by geography. We have different expectations of investors, whether it be in Europe, the U.S., you know, in Asia Pacific and uh, and down in Australia. So to, to really navigate that, it, you know, you'll have, I think the best advice is to follow best practice, um, looking globally what's happening. Um, you know, transparency is key, looking at the best practices across the globe and, and putting that together. And, that, and that's how we generally uh, look at that. 
um, to try and you know navigate the market. But also, I think this is it is evolving and it's developing. But if you stick to best practices, um, highest transparency, I think um, that's what everyone is pushing for on the investor side as well. And there's a lot of rigor and questions coming around, and investors are getting more specific on what they will buy and won't buy now. So I think that that will continue to to, to develop, uh, which is good for the market. And what are our customers telling us about their sustainable finance ambitions? Yeah, so I think there's no no real signs of kind of slowdown in terms of uh, customers wanting to discuss sustainable finance and, and understand what their options are. I mean, it's a natural evolution when there's so much focus on what they're doing with their targets, you know, 2025 targets, 2030, 2050. Um, and as we've talked about, the, the awareness building within the market, um, you know, these companies are being pushed, they're being asked questions, whether they do a sustainable finance transaction or not. Um, so, you know, we get a lot of questions from, from customers. I mean, a lot we're already engaged with um, and already have been discussing sustainable finance with for a while. Um, but, yeah, we have customers that are at different ends of the spectrum with particular reference to sustainable finance and whether that's bonds, loans, supply chain products, um, you know, sustainable sustainability-linked derivatives. Um, I think there's their understanding that, you know, there's – products that they can leverage um, to help them drive um, the sustainability agenda within their organization as well. And kind of, you know, it, it is really about linking their, you know, their cost of capital to sustainability outcomes. Um, and I think that'll really just um, just continue over time. And we, you know, we do get we do get the question of, you know, at what point does um, you know, sustainability, sustainable finance become mainstream and, you know, there's kind of normal finance and there's sort of your brown finance maybe or something like that. Um, I think we're, we're quite a way away from that. I mean, again, to go back to what we were talking about before in terms of, you know, investors are striving to define ESG. They're, they're striving to work out what that means for them. They want some standardization. Um, and, and, you know, the, the sustainable finance products and, and the governance structures around those as well um, do help to provide that for them um, and help to kind of give them the information that they then need to report to their investors or, or maybe the lenders need to report in terms of their impact as well. And really what it comes back to is understanding, again, the, the position of, of, the, of the company and, and their transition targets. I mean, there's a lot of focus now, obviously, as timelines kind of getting shorter towards um, 2030 and 2050 and, you know, having or understanding that, cr- that credible transition strategy, which is what I was talking about earlier. Um, you know, a lot of the focus that we have um, – particularly when dealing with the the high emitting industries is around scope three. Um, and, you know, again, that awareness has grown over time. Um, and so, you know, we, we probably will see more proliferation of sort of sustainable supply chain products that deal with that, that scope three element. Um, but, you know, it is, it is a tricky space and it, and it does depend on, on the situation and on the borrower. And there is a bit of, of nuance there. Um, so what I hear is, uh, particularly on the, on the bond side is that it's about engagement. Engagement is essential. There's a huge economic opportunity in the transition to net zero, and that includes high emitting companies. 
Um, so it's about unlocking that. And usually the first step to that is, is, is true engagement between the fixed income investors um, and the corporates themselves. Yeah, I think the first step is really um, the, the understanding and coming up with a comprehensive kind of comp- sustainability plan. I think a lot, of, um, a lot of the companies are in the early stages of that, just grappling with you know, what is you know, their, their kind of sustainability plan um, is it feasible? And then how to that message that to the market and then um, engage investors with that. I think that's the, that's the biggest um, kind of first step that, and, and discussion that's happening. And then just broadly, um, you know, how, what our customers are telling us and, and the questions we're getting is one is, you know, how, how would this look like from a access to capital? So as, as ESG develops, as Tessa mentioned, does it become mainstream and how will this generally impact our access to capital going forward and, and how will that evolve in the market? Because I think while we're living this in a year-by-year year basis, if you look big picture, I think the evolution will go a lot much faster in terms of what, what that access looks like and, what, and then secondly, what the cost looks like. Because right now, arguably, um, the cost of ESG financing you know, you could argue that sometimes it's cheaper because you, you've done an ESG format, you're getting a better price in the market. But also to the on the flip side, the negative is um, if they don't meet their KPIs and targets in the bond market, it's it's about only a 25 bit increase to the margin. So arguably that doesn't really price what the real impact of not meeting your target. But I think right now, it's just a metric of a reputational risk, but also to show the, the market that you're very serious in engaging on, you know, to net zero or your KPI targets to really, you know, build in that ESG framework and meet those targets. So there's, that's a big, big picture debate and, and theme, you know, the, does the current costs and structure really reflect, you know, if they don't meet their targets and how does that work? Uh, in the bond market, you can't get a cost reduction for actually meeting targets while in the loan market you can. Um, generally, there have been one or two transactions in the bond market, maybe you can, but right now you're only getting a penalty for issuers. So that's a big that's a big thematic. And then um, a, a, as this market develops also, I think the, the, the companies are, are really looking for best practices. What's happening globally? How does that apply to us? Um, how can we, you know, look at that or how do we access that? Um, and, you know, lastly, I would say one of the big themes is also when you look at the development of ESG, you started with the green, now sustainable. Will it develop into something else or will it just become one big scorecard on ESG? Could you just access the market just by having, you know, the right score of general rounding ESG so you don't have to build in certain small frameworks across across your uh, funding um, framework. So you have three or four that over over time could become confusing because you have so many targets as you run out of targets effectively. Do you just have a bigger ESG score? So there's a lot of good discussion and debate going uh, with clients and a lot of you know big picture questions as well as then the smaller questions on, you know, how do we do this? How do we, you know, look at the framework and for example. So yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting time right now. That was On Air by ANZ Institutional. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe to hear more. This podcast is intended as thought leadership material. It is not published with the intention of providing any direct or indirect recommendations 
or to influence any person to make a decision in relation to any financial product or class of financial products. It is general in nature and does not take account of the circumstances of any individual or class of individuals. For further information, please refer to the full disclaimer at institutional.anz.com.